0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Zach Kanner, founder and CEO of Steady. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Zach, I first discovered you uh, on Twitter uh, and only to uh, recently find that you have left Twitter. Uh, so why don't we talk about your, your love affair with Twitter uh, on and off and, and why uh, why the detachment? From posting, of course, not from lurking and yeah. uh, DMs.
1: It's one of those things that when I decided to, to go off Twitter, and before I get into this, I think one of the, the things about Twitter, probably all the people or many of the people who are listening on, on the podcast participate in it to some extent or another. But you realize, um, once you try to talk to someone who is not involved in Twitter, how sort of absurd the whole thing yeah. sounds. And it actually reminds me of uh, in college, my freshman year, I was standing in the elevator of my dorm. It was like I had been there just a few days. And I heard this uh girl talking about her weekend. She's like, so this happened. And she's talking about all this drama that happened between friends and everything. And I'm sitting there. And, like, I'm, you know, not usually one to... Uh, eavesdrop on this stuff. But um, bit by bit, the story gets more and more, I mean, like, unbelievable. And um, uh, finally, you know, when I'm just about to get out of the elevator, she says, anyways, I can't wait to see what happens next week. And, you know, it occurred to me that she's talking about a reality TV show where I just didn't know any of the characters and all this stuff. And so I I imagine that's uh, like that level of absurdity is probably how it sounds to people when you're talking about Twitter, because it's really... Um, you know, it's text-based and everything, but it's just, yeah. um, I wrote about this a little bit in a, in a, uh, newsletter I sent out yesterday. It's just like, um, um, text-based uh, role-playing game almost, you yeah. know, and, and when you first sit down and play one of those games, it looks ridiculous, you know, it's yeah. just a bunch of text, but then you pretty quickly get into it. It's like a fiction book. So my experience, you know, I've been on Twitter for eight years or nine, seven years, something yeah. like that, a bit of a late bloomer. Um, that was 2012. It was incredible. Uh, you know, part of that is the, you know, I've been based in, in Boulder, Colorado, which is, um, you know, you, you sort of read about it being a good tax scene and everything, but obviously it's nothing right. compared to, uh, something like the Bay area. And so it becomes this, um, shared space that you could sort of opt into at any time. You can like open the door and all, you know, this is yeah. like bustling thing happening all the yeah. time. And so I found it to be incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, many of our investors, you know, uh, customers, all sorts of stuff have come from Twitter. Friends have come from Twitter, and all yeah. this. You and I've met through Twitter. Podcasts have come from Twitter. Um, but I think at some point you start to see uh, diminishing returns.
0: Yeah, and that's when your audience gets a certain size. Because I've seen, or when your audience gets a certain size, now you can crowdsource. Now you can mooch. Now, now you can sort of, you know, put a wrong answer and someone will correct you. So, uh, what 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 what's the diminishing returns?
1: So. Let's say you're interested in two different subjects, okay. and those subjects are uh, tech and investing. I have a good indication of this, but my guess is that maybe there's a thousand or 2 thousand, single-digit thousands of people that you would probably want to interact with on on Twitter in each one of those subjects. Mm. And what I mean by want to interact with is like takes things in good faith and yeah. has an interesting um, uh, take on things. And you start to see that um, once you expand past that, uh, you're, you're uh, in the beginning – um, you just get sort of more amplification. So more people, um, start to promote the things that you're saying, but like the, the quality of thought, um, though it's not necessarily diluted, uh, is, is not, um, increasing on average. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, uh, life is smooth sailing after you get those first couple thousand until you get to a, a certain number of, of, of thousands of followers. And at that point, um, you actually start to see not just diminishing returns, but negative returns. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm not someone who thinks that Twitter's the worst thing in the world or anything like that, um, and that this is like unbearable abuse or anything that happens. But the thought experiment um, that I that I think through is this idea of like who uh, whose Twitter following do you aspire to have? And this is a perfect example of a question where um, if you know someone was not a Twitter user, uh, would were to, were to listen to this, it would sound like the most ridiculously self important uh, thing ever. But for me, you know, you look at um, the, you know, the people in, in the venture community who have hundreds of thousands or God forbid, millions of followers, um, you know, you realize that life is not all that much different or all that, all that great there. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we could draw some deeper analogy of other things too. But, but I think the reason is, is that the absolute number of followers that you're really interested in interacting with doesn't change all that much. Right. Um, and so it just gets filled out with noise. And, um, I actually think it's not about the negative pieces. It's more about like, at best you're dealing with hero worship. Yeah. Um, and like, I was no, nowhere near that point, but, um, you look at the, the, the sort of engagement that the people are having back and forth at, at the hundreds of thousands of followers yeah. level. And it's just like, is that really, is that really what you're going for? Totally. And so you get to this point where like you can have access to any sort of conversations that you want to have and everything, but, um, there, there's like not much, uh, point continuing yeah. to, to grow the base from there.
0: We'll move off Twitter and a made but a couple of last comments from me. And I'm curious for your response. The one, there was this line of, uh, like Twitter is a game and you don't want to be it or, or something like uh, every day someone, someone gets roasted or canceled or whatever it is. And I remember, I liked your point about how crazy it must, it sounds for someone who's not a Twitter user to sort of get the sense for what Twitter is. Like I was explaining to my friend of, you know, some of my friends are sort of front lines and what I call the culture war. And she's like, it's not a war. No one's dying, you know? And I'm like, no, no, no. The norms are being set here. Like Twitter is this sort of microcosm, but it does expand out. And um, how we talk about certain things or um, how things are viewed. Twitter's a front lines for it. Yeah. It is a reality. Sh- it's just interesting how both absurd it is and how not reality it is. But at the same time, you know, I mean, Donald Trump was elected on Twitter. Like, there's you know, there's certain things of that Twitter does uh does bring out.
1: Yeah, in in many ways, it's like a like a sci-fi book where you know you you uh, you plug into this matrix and and you put on this mech warrior suit. Maybe the mech warrior suit is your I'm mixing my, my metaphors here, but maybe this mech warrior suit is your your uh, your followers and you're going out there and you know doing battle on these absurd you know fronts of you know whether it's uh, uh, physics or, or or social justice or whatever else it might be and uh sure you know heroes and 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 uh villains are are made there and it's very engaging but it's it's just a game yes. um and and now it's a game that has some real currency in real life that you can trade in for things and and i think that those things are are wonderful the real reason is not that i said hey uh, i'm i'm sick of playing this game and i'm i'm so bored it's more of um neil gaiman who's this uh, uh fantasy author he someone asked him i'm repeating this story and realizing that i actually haven't Heard this firsthand, so I'm not 100% sure it's true, but the uh, uh, idea is that someone said, How are you so creative? And he writes this, you know, fantastically creative stories. Um, and he said, Well, it's easy. I lock myself into a room. I leave my phone outside. I don't let my friends and my family contact me. And I wait. I get myself as bored as possible until the only way out of this boredom um, is to write a book, to entertain yeah. myself. And so I, I guess shutting up Twitter is a way of me saying, I'm more interested in, in diving into things uh, in a longer form format. And I didn't think That if I, they say, like, if you want to pick something up, you have to put something else down. Yeah. This is me putting something down.
0: Totally. The the last thing on Twitter for me is you had this tweet that went very viral. It's one huge drawback of nuclear power is that it doesn't dismantle systems of oppression. It only produces clean energy. This makes it unsuitable for solving the climate crisis, which isn't just about the environment. Maybe putting aside the the content for a second, any learnings from having, you know, broken Twitter? (laughs) Uh (laughs) You know, you know thousands of people harass you or, or like well uh, any insights from there
1: it was an odd experience um people i had people that went to high school with texting me and saying oh my <laughs> god you're you know um, um uh, in in huge trouble on twitter and it was one of these um fantastic experiences of getting exactly what you want yeah and i didn't the the sort of dryness of the content wasn't lost on me. I wrote it that way in particular and I got exactly what I wanted which was to get you know both sides this is the you know Twitter equivalent of shooting the moon where you get both sides absolutely incensed. Um, And so everybody got angry and I just like it was very empty. I was just like, oh, I guess yeah. you know, you get it. You get a couple of thousand followers. You get you know, hate uh, mail and and all this stuff. And you know, people sign up for your um, uh, beta, you know, invite on your on your website with like nasty email addresses, telling you what an <laughs> idiot you are. And it was just, uh, it, it was unsatisfying yeah. in a way that winning things some, sometimes are.
0: I, I like that as a theme, and, and you, you've written about that before. Basically, is it sort of your punchline. What you've learned from you know your short life. Getting what you want won't make you happy <laughs> or getting what you want too early won't make you happy. You, uh, I think you, you had the story that you wrote about where early on in your career, you were making enough money, sort of doing this automated business that didn't, you didn't need to be full time. And so you moved to Buenos Aires and you thought that was a dream and maybe it wasn't as fulfilling as, as you thought it might be.
1: Yeah. I think, um, I would phrase it a little bit differently <laughs> that like, yeah, I think like you, I forget exactly
0: what you said, which is basically you're never going to be happy. I would
1: phrase it slightly differently.
0: What you want Yeah. Or maybe how would you um, phrase it?
1: There's, uh, It's sort of, um, uh, be careful what you wish for, because uh, if you're you know, um, a, a capable person, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to get it. Um, someone said to me that you spend the first part of your career wondering if you're going to have enough, and the second part of your career wondering if you're going to be enough. Um, of course, you could say, like, well, why don't you just jump to the be enough part? It's not that simple. A lot of times you have to have enough before you can think about being enough. Have you read the book Finite and Infinite Games? Yeah. I didn't read the book, but I read the first thirty pages, yeah. and it's pretty dense. Uh, right. But uh, but you read the first thirty pages, and the idea is basically, um, uh, you know, some games uh, you play finite games you play for the sake of winning, infinite games you play for the sake of continuing to play. Yep. Um, the 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 trick is that a lot of finite games feel like infinite games, um, and and money can feel like that, uh, business can feel like that. Um, but you have to think about what, what sort of it is that you want. When, when I had this automated auto parts business, um, I thought at the time, this was in my early twenties when I sort of hit, started reaching for this target of I want to build uh, a business that required no employees in order to run it. Um, and eventually I got to that point and it was making plenty of money and all this stuff. Uh, and what I realized with all this abundance of free time is that what I really want to do with my free time is work more. And I had played some city and some tower and roller coaster tycoon and transport tycoon growing up. I literally played games about business. Like this is, this is the thing I wanted to do. So when I had all the free time, I didn't want to train for the Olympics. I didn't want to, you know, learn to play poker. I did not want to do any of these things. I, uh, I what I really want to do is work more. And so uh, if sort of your hobby is business, then I think the ultimate goal is uh, working with the smartest possible people you can find on the hardest possible problems you can find. Why are hard problems important? Because otherwise, it's not an infinite game for everybody else, yeah. even if this business um, is uh, something that you could work on forever. If it's not something that's that's endlessly interesting for other people, uh, they're going to get bored. They're going to move on to other things. So that necessitates not just hard problem, but uh, a practically um, unlimited market size, uh, because if you don't have a substantial market size, you know people start to bump up against each other and the business, even though the business world at large is, is not a zero-sum game, your company becomes a zero-sum game.
0: Yeah. So the dream is working on the you know, hardest problems possible with the, or the biggest impact problems with the, with the best people. Let's talk about sort of the, the journey of, of picking startup ideas. Uh, let's, when you introduce what, what Steady is, how, how you sort of navigated the DMAs and picking it. Let's talk, go through that journey and what advice for entrepreneurs you'd have. Uh,
1: Steady is a, a platform for, for exchanging, uh, structured, uh, business to business messages. And that probably means um, almost nothing to most people. It probably would have meant nothing to me uh, coming into it. But um, we're, we're based on the, the name steady is based on this play of play on words of, of uh, EDI. And what EDI is, uh, is uh, electronic data interchange. So in the simplest possible example, let's say you're a company like Fitbit and you're selling to Amazon and Best Buy and Walmart. Uh, As Fitbit, you need to receive hundreds or thousands of purchase orders every day or every week or every month from each one of these retailers. You have to physically ship this transaction in the real world, whether that's by boat or air or truck. Um, And then you have to send back tracking numbers and invoices and all this sort of stuff. As it turns out, there are no APIs for Amazon or Walmart or Best Buy. The only way to send and receive these order-related transactions is by this archaic file format and transfer protocol called EDI. Um, so if your eyes aren't glazing over already, uh, basically uh, what this is, is it's a precursor to APIs, but it's not just uh, for when Amazon orders from Fitbit. It's also for when Fitbit orders from Foxconn in Taiwan or China, when they put it on the truck and the truck puts it on the boat and the boat you know delivers it to the other port. Every physical object that you've ever come across basically is touched by this technology. It's not just retail and supply chain. It's also um, uh, basically any other type of business-to-business transaction so this uh, set of, let's call it 325 transaction types, describes every possible way that two companies can do business with each other. It's healthcare, it's student re- uh, transcripts and records, it's um, uh, supply chain, it's invoices, it's financial transactions, basically everything. Um, and so what we do is we're like a, uh, you can think of us as a network of, of uh, digital mailboxes. Um, if uh if Slack is a platform for exchanging unstructured text messages inside your company, Steady is a platform for exchanging highly structured transactions between two different companies. Yeah.
0: And, um, how did you pick this idea out of all the ideas? I know you're fascinated by Elon Musk and SpaceX and, uh, you want to work in the world's hardest problems. How did you settle on, on Steady as, as the idea for you? And what advice do you have for entrepreneurs in generally in terms of picking ideas?
1: The nice thing about this sort of world of, of integrations is you can't just be, you know, three smart engineers from Palantir or Google or or, or something and say, I want to build a B2B supply chain network. Uh, you, you you sort of have to have some, some ground level context on it. Through building this auto parts business, which I started in high school, I ran throughout my uh, 20s into my early 30s. I ran the business on, a, on an accounting ERP system called NetSuite. I sold to auto parts retailers and I wanted to build this business by myself with, with uh, no employees, no clerical administrative people, I reached out to each one of the retailers that I was selling to because I was literally manually entering these email transactions every day. I said, can you send me your API spec so I can automate the transactions? And one by one, they all wrote back and said, what's an API? So they basically had never heard of this before. And I found out about this, uh, you know, wonderful world of EDI. I went through three different implementations with three different companies and it was like an 18-month implementation with the last throughout which everything could possibly go wrong, went wrong. And ultimately in 2013, I had my own sort of homegrown system built in order to automate these transactions and that ran the business for the next five years till I sold it to a private equity fund. In doing this, like the most exciting thing I had ever done was worked on building this uh, homegrown EDI system. Like it was, uh, you know, uh, I guess... My advice to entrepreneurs, you know, find the thing that when you talk to people about it, like they just are saying, God, when is this guy going to stop talking about this problem uh, that, that you can't stop talking about? And for me, it's EDI. Like it's, it's, it sounds boring, but here's this uh, structured format that describes all the possible ways that companies can do business with each other. Once you have this structured format on top of that, there's all sorts of interesting things you can do. You can do financing and analytics and you can have an app store and all this sort of stuff let's put it this way. So the world of of cryptocurrency and blockchain had this amazing insight, which is to say that the world is missing ledgers everywhere. The world would be a much better place if there were more ledgers in the world. Um, And and ledgers are like a a shared transaction log, time order transaction log that has a a unique set of transactions that that describes everything that's happened between uh, uh, various parties. I think the mistake that some people in that world have made is saying that, because uh, the world is missing uh, these ledgers, that um, what's missing is 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 better ledger technology. And I don't think that's the case. I think, like uh, broadly, um, there's there's some amazing use cases in terms of currency and all this stuff, but there's others where where that's not the case. Um, and uh, what Steady basically is, is a ledger for the world of B two B trade. So it's this insight of saying, hey, look out there, uh, there's missing this uh, sort of shared space where everybody can can be trading their transactions. Um, and, uh, and and that's sort of uh, what we're building. So I think uh, uh, to sort of sum it up, the further you get into a space and the more familiar uh, with it you become, the more obvious these huge missing pieces become. And you know the inverse is also true, which is when you're looking at things from far away, you know, it's, it's much much harder to see these things.
0: So beyond currency, how do you think about blockchain? Um, And and its potential applications will will steady ever interface with blockchain in some way or how do you sort of foresee that?
1: Ever is a long time. I think, you know, the the time horizon is pretty long. I don't know all that much about the space to say, but I think that um, from coming from the supply chain space and you start, you know, you see all these initiatives by Walmart and and all these people uh, uh, to, to build out some sort of a supply chain blockchain the problem is not having a way to store the transactions. The problem is getting all the parties involved yeah. to participate. And I don't mean participate by signing up for some sort of you know consortium. I mean participate in terms of use whatever user interface is available to, to put these onto and off of this ledger. And so for us, we focus a lot on user experience in terms of how do we make this as easy as possible for someone to enter transactions into our ledger, which is not yeah. a decentralized ledger. And that comes from... Um, you know, a number of different ways could be a UI, could be uh, an API, could be SFTP. It could be, um, an integration with, with their, uh, business system and things like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to transition into something you've been thinking a lot about recently and and writing about, which is how, uh, which is company billing and, and, and some ideas around how companies are misbuilt today or or common mistakes that, that, uh, that they make. So why don't you take the floor and expound a little bit on, on where, where you're sort of interested there?
1: Part of the interesting thing of the world of business, and I guess this, this applies to, to just about everything, is that uh, the best technology of today uh, is used to build the technology of tomorrow. And so you get this compounding effect where we're not having to, you know, write machine code from, yep. from scratch and all this stuff. Do you know um, Florent Crivello? Yeah, of course. So he has this uh, amazing post. And I forget the name of the the title of the post, but the the concept from it is this idea of the valley of mismatch. And uh, what the valley of mismatch is, is this, Um, it's best illustrated with an example. When they first came out with the automobile, it wasn't called an automobile, it was called a horseless carriage. And, uh, a horseless carriage, if you've ever seen a picture, if you Google a picture of it, it is literally a horseless carriage. Mm-hmm. It is a carriage where they've taken the horse away, and they've uh, kept the person in the same spot, and they've replaced that with a steering wheel. And it actually took a long time for, for automobiles to look like they do today, I would say probably around the early 40s. And up till then, you know, at some point, someone realized, oh, the reason why someone is uh, sitting up so high when you have a carriage is because they have to see over the horse. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point of having someone up there? And uh, the idea of this valley of mismatch is that when a new technology comes about, uh, a very long time might pass. Uh, sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's fast. Uh, before the world adopts to the correct way of using that that technology, and I think that we're always in sort of some sort of a, a valley of mismatch. Examples of this are Photoshop. So when, uh, you know, the c- computers came out and everything, they said, hey, we used to be doing these, uh, these mock-ups on on paper. And, you know, how, God knows how they did these things before they had Photoshop, but they did them on paper, a single machine. And they said, hey, we can do this on a computer instead. And you have this desktop app and you install it. Well, really, what we've come to see is with, you know, Figma, uh or and, and things like that or or you know a web flow in the development space is that the correct way is to have a third party host this information and give both you and I access so that we can work on it at the same time so the idea uh, uh behind this is that i think um the uh, new ways of doing things uh, the the way that people are doing this are always trailing the, the sort of new paradigm that's that's out there and you knew that the era of blitzscaling was over once the book was published because that's just sort, sort of how these things work. By the time the book is, is out, it's sort of over. And I think a lot of people look at these strategies. Um, and in the world of investing, everybody jokes around about backtesting where it's like you, should, you have this great strategy and you backtest it and it works great. But in, in reality, you, things don't really work yeah. that way. And, and backtested strategies don't always pan out the way you think. Um, so uh, what we know is that blitzscaling is no longer the way to build a company but we're not quite sure what the correct way is next and there's this you know renewed focus on unit economics and um and, and building things in uh in you know whatever you call it, a more sustainable way and these are the sort of things that I'm that I'm thinking about a lot uh the analogy that I use uh if google built the army and stripe built the marines um we want to build the navy seals and that's not to say that the navy seals are better than the army they're, they serve different purposes, and without the, you know, uh, marines, the Navy SEALs probably couldn't uh, get dropped in the place where they need to get dropped because, you know, they have to be amphibious and, and all this sort of stuff. So these are a lot of high-level concepts. In terms of where does this uh, come down to from a low level, you see a lot of startups, and a lot of startups don't hire, um, you know, in the past haven't hired, se- you know, really senior engineering teams, or they've had some mix of, of senior folks and, and junior folks. I think this has worked fairly well because the complexity of the products that have been built over the last 10 years are constrained in some way. In other words, it's not to say they're easy, but it's likely that um, entrepreneurs have, have taken the totality of all the ideas that are out there and, uh, they've stack ranked them from highest value to lowest value and another access, uh, hard, you know, most complex to least complex. And they've probably started with the things that are in the top right quadrant, which is, um, uh, least complex and, 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 um, biggest market potential. And so you look at, um, uh, Instagram 10, 12 people and it got acquired for a billion dollars. WhatsApp, 40 something people or less than 40 people and it got acquired for 16 billion. And part of that is that the, uh, complexity of the app was, was limited to the, surface area that you see on your phone. What I mean by that is if you get 10 smart engineers sitting around the table talking about WhatsApp, there's not that high of a chance of misunderstanding what it is that we're trying to build. Uh, Because you can visualize it, you can can literally draw it, you can build the front end first. And then you see a company like Stripe where there's a lot of surface area and a lot of things happen, Um, um, you you, you can't visualize the totality of what needs to be done in one single place. And Stripe has eighteen hundred people, two thousand people, something like that. Yeah. Um, all this is a long way of saying that I believe that we are now entering a time where it's possible to do um, with extremely um, large surface area, complex enterprise apps uh, what was done with apps like uh, like WhatsApp and uh, and Instagram um, with a similar sort of headcount. We we are entering the time where the trade-off between revenue and headcount. Uh, no longer needs to be made
0: yeah, and what are other second or third order effects that could that could emerge from that?
1: The obvious one is the con- increased concentration of wealth uh, amongst uh, early founding team um, so you know you used to see a thousand people get uh, get rich from a startup or you know five hundred people get rich from a startup and, and maybe that uh, maybe that happens from a, a smaller amount, but to be honest i haven 't really thought about the second or third order oh no you 're fine. So here's where I think um, uh, th- things are interesting. Setting aside the second and or third order effects, I think that with a um, an app with a constrained set of um, surface area of complexity, where you can sort of observe observe the, the whole thing um, uh, by looking at it, it's fine to have a mix of um, of talent on your team. Meaning, if you have uh, ten. Great engineers and five good engineers. Um, I think that, uh, you get this, uh, you get this pretty good effect. When you're dealing with something that's extremely complex, um, and, and that's something like what we're working on, uh, where it's, there's lots of integrations. There's many, many different transaction types. Um, and I don't mean to say our business is more complex than others. Maybe they're all the same amount of complexity. There's, there's a difference in terms of surface area. Does that make sense? Yeah. And for us, uh, with a, with a large amount of surface area, it's actually that uh, a team of ten great engineers will work faster than a team of uh, ten great engineers plus five good engineers, and these are all, of course, like subjective things that are that are hard to define. Yeah. Um, but I think that one thing that you'll see uh, in this like anti-blitzscaling era uh, era is that uh, talent density matters more than absolute number yeah. of. Talented folks.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to take this in a totally different direction. Um, Peter Thiel in a recent talk said that the U.S. doesn't scale people well. It scales finance well. Scales technology well. But it doesn't scale people well in contrast to China, which seems to be scaling relatively well. You've written about how Amazon has has managed to scale and still maintain a, a strong tempo. Um, what do you think it is about organizations that are able to scale people that's everything from those who can't
1: uh, scale people, meaning the absolute number of people and, yeah. and, and not see a, a decline in, yeah. in feature velocity or value created. Yeah. I think the U S is an example of uh, a company that uh, a company, a country that does uh, uh, business well and practically everything else poorly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other countries in the world do everything else really well and business very poorly. And there's people yeah. come, you know, yeah. companies yeah. in the middle mm-hmm. somewhere. I think Amazon's endlessly interesting. And I know that's not that interesting thing of a thing to say now because everybody thinks that, but Amazon's one of these topics, like I'm not obsessed with Amazon, kind of obsessed with Amazon, (laughs) but I'm, but what it is, is that the more you read about complexity dynamics and organizational structure and all this stuff, you see that it was just, they've made so many good decisions in how they do things. Yeah. I think as Paul Graham says, the best design uh, mimics nature. And so he talks about the idea of uh, repetitive symmetry and recursive symmetry in one of his posts about uh, about Lisp, I think, where the idea being, um, if you look at a tree, um, the right half of a tree looks like the left half of a tree. That's repetitive symmetry. Yep. Um, a leaf, when you hold it up, looks a lot like a tree. And that's an idea of recursive symmetry where, yep. where you know, as you zoom in, it sort of looks uh, uh, the same as the bigger piece. Amazon has borrowed, I think, a lot of ideas from, from evolution. And it's it's always better to sort of borrow from a system that works as opposed yeah. to, to come up with something from scratch. What Amazon has done, um, the evolutionary equation is this idea of, of differentiate, select, and amplify. Sure. And so differentiation happens through mutation, um, uh, selection happens um, through uh, fitness functions, and amplification happens through sexual reproduction. What Amazon basically did, um, have you, have you heard about the Amazon memos? I'm sure you have, you know, Amazon basically, um, executives and people all throughout the organization come up with these ideas. They write memos, um, before the memo ever makes it to committee, they're sort of talking about it a lot. Most ideas, um, end up on the cutting room floor. And finally, uh, they're tested against some sort of a fitness function. This fitness function is basically customer value. How much do, does the team who's reviewing this thing think that it, is going to deliver customer value. Um, so, so they're sort of putting this um, first fitness function in place without even having to bring it to market. Yeah. Once, they, once they do that, they choose the things that get greenlit, they bring it to market, and then Amazon is the best in the world at, at amplifying these things, figuring out what works and going from there. The other way that they do things is through interface design. So Amazon says... Um, and I think, you know, this is not just Amazon. This is the way that, that, that most good companies work. They say. Early on, Bezos said it was, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Steve with the famous engineer at Amazon, who said, uh, uh, talked about Bezos' edict, which is, uh, you know, from this point uh, forward, um, all teams will expose their functionality through interfaces. I don't care if it's an API or or whatever else it might be, uh, but we're all going to expose this stuff through an interface, and, uh, and people are going to have to communicate through that interface. And all of a sudden... You've seen these diagrams of, you know, when a team goes from four people to 15 people, the number of inter- interconnections between the nodes goes up, you know, meaningfully. Um, all of a sudden, when you have an interface between – it basically is like drawing a big circle around a cluster of people of five or ten people. So, so you know, a lot of this is about finding those those, those correct abstractions. The final piece, have you read uh, Seeing Like a State? Yes. So um, Seeing Like a State is a recent read from me. Talks about this idea of legibility. Yep. Uh the German government or or the, whatever the approxim, approximation of the German government was back in the uh Some new feudal lord would come in and would gain ownership over this forest. And they would, the feudal lord would say, I want to know, uh, what is the value in lumber of this forest? And so they would send people out and they would sample a certain area and say, you have this many of this tree and this many of this tree and this many of that tree. And they would, you know, aggregate, you know, multiply this times the area of the forest and try and figure out how much this thing was worth. And they said, uh, you know, they would, they would send people out to sample this and count the various numbers of trees and they would, uh, apply this to the entire area of the forest and figure out uh, you know what the sort of total value, aggregate value of all this lumber was. Now as they started to cut it down, they replaced that lumber with uh, the most valuable trees, which is only a logical thing, but instead of interspersing them, you know, all throughout the forest, they basically planted them in rows because rows are much easier to count and it's probably easier to chop down and all this stuff. What they missed out on is the fact that all the people who live near the forest Hunted in the forest and they made their thatched roofs out of the underbrush that fell from the trees. And that, you know, when trees are, are, um, sort of arranged in a haphazard way, there's probably less of a chance of a forest fire and, and all these benefits that come from, uh, from nature. It turns out nature's pretty smart in, in terms of the way it does things. The idea being that in order to optimize for the legibility of the person on top, uh, you sacrifice Really, the quality of life and the effectiveness of all the all the all the people who are who are on the ground floor, on the forest floor, in this case, and I think in uh, startups, not just startups, but pretty much all companies, this sort of thing happens, where people say, you know, what, what are the KPIs? What's the NPS? What's um, uh, you know, uh, what what are all these different uh, things that I think are very important? Product roadmaps is another example of this, and there's two problems. One is that you cannot capture the richness, many of these measures through a single number or a single, you know, quantitative metric. Uh, So that's problem number one. The second problem is that when people attempt to do that, you lose out on some of the richness that's happening. um, Meaning you don't just miss out on the measurement, you actually change the behavior of people on the ground floor. So, you know, you read that book and you're just like, my God, you know, how can I go back to doing things the way I had ever done them before? And, And if you're sort of an anarchist, anarchist-ish like me, uh, it takes you, you know, one step further.
0: Yeah. And so how does that change how you think about company building? Like, what does that cause you to want to implement or, or change or? It's the
1: opposite of implement. It makes you want to remove everything that you've done.
0: Um, I did want to segue into how you think about management um, and your know, hierarchy versus decentralized.
1: So we're, um, we're, we're a bit odd. Uh, we have 13 people. Almost all, you know, uh, basically nine engineers and, and some non engineers. We have no formal roadmap. We have no meetings. We have no stand ups. We don't tell people what to do. For the most part, people come in and work on what they think is most important. I'm trying to think of what else we don't do. We pay 90th percentile in terms of, of salaries. We. I have almost no documentation. We have no written principles. We have no written tenets. We have none of the things that you would normally expect. Now, you don't get any points for just not doing things. It also <laughs> needs to, to make sense. You know, we s- didn't start off this way. Um There's this saying that, sim- you know, when, when so- you see a simple system, you say, why don't we start here? Well, it's not really how it works. You have to end there. I think it was Keith Roboy said, you can either hire good people and be great at managing or you can hire uh, excellent people who don't need to be managed. I don't think it's that simple. Everybody needs to be managed, but it depends how you define managed. I mean, managed you know, on one side can be, you know, try to, try to fit into a certain set of processes and managed on the other side can be more like, um, how, uh, if you've read uh, score takes care of itself by Bill Walsh, you know, that's, I wouldn't quite call that management. It's, it's, you know, it's coaching literally. And so in those ways, um, you know, how do these things work? Well, we hire excellent people, we set a very clear north star, uh which is uh which is easy to do in in a sport like football it's to say like we want to win games. Um, and uh, uh for a company like us, we want to process every single business to business transaction on the planet. In order to do that, we have to sign up every company to use our software. We need to be able um to allow companies to use our API, SFTP, UI, email, they have to be able to do uh, JSON, XML, EDI files, both in the, the U.S. and international formats. They have to be able to do this in every language. We have to do, be able to do CSVs and PDFs. So it's really, for us, it's a sequencing problem. It's not a question, and this to me is like um, the most interesting sort of problem in the world, where you're saying um, we just need to figure out what the order is um, in which we build this and, and how we build it. There's, there's a saying, uh, my brother's a mechanical engineer and he, it's what he calls just engineering. When you say, we just need to do this, and it's like, there's, there's a lot packed into that just. The way, so, so I'm talking about all the ways that seeing like a state made me think like, oh, wow, I'm doing a great job here. The ways that, it, the way it makes me think I've, I've made some, some colossal mistakes is I would say I'm, I'm fairly technically minded. I don't have a technical founder, co-founder. I'm, I'm a sole founder. Um, and in talking to the engineers, from time to time, I'll say, I want you to surface this in the UI, in a UI for us to look at in some way or another. And the engineers say, it, like, it's, it's working exactly how we want it to. Why do you need it to be in the UI? And I've had a hard time articulating it, but basically what... Uh, I've come to realize is that I'm I'm optimizing for my legibility when it's actually quite legible to them. And it's the equivalent of, you you know, drop into a local uh, tribe somewhere and they have some unit of measure that doesn't make any sense to you. Well, you have to assume that it's evolved that way for some certain reason. And just because it doesn't make sense to you uh, doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to them.
0: Yeah. It is interesting. In in our firm, sometimes we go, we go back and forth on how bottoms up versus top down we should be strategy wise, top down, like sector geo and I think, yeah, the top down argument is often because of legibility. It, it makes more sense to LPs. It sounds smarter. It sounds more reasonable. Whereas the bottoms up, you know, it sound unsophisticated. Sometimes like I just, this person was really amazing or, you know, or this thing sort of emerged and it, it come, can come across as random when really, uh, sometimes it's, it's taking advantage of things that are emergent or, or things that you, you know, already knew that you had in your network or things like that. But that's somewhere where I, where I face that.
1: A hundred percent agree. I think, um, it's one of these horrible things that you you learn and you just see it everywhere, yeah. right? and you just you realize you see it in your own behavior, you see it in, in others, and that's not to say. Uh, you know, total chaos should reign and, and because, uh, you know, we're gonna, uh, because we're not optimizing for legibility, therefore founders can come in and say anything that doesn't make sense to us and we're gonna hand over a pile of money. Um, but it, but it, um, you know, I think it is, uh, worth thinking about from a board standpoint, for example. Um, how much am I optimizing for, for my legibility as a, as a board member as opposed to, uh, what's actually best for the business? And, and the other thing is that, um, um, you know what's the name of that effect that when you observe something, you you you're you're changing actually how it, um, uh, Heisenberg principle,
0: Goodhart's law, maybe Goodhart's
1: law, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, the uh, but but basically it's the idea of how much are how much are you affecting things by the by simple yeah. fact that you're you're trying to make them legible.
0: Goodhart's law is anything you measure ceases to be a good measure. Yep. Even if it's not legible, I'm just going to keep being a genius, and people can t- see it or not see it. I'm just kidding. So, one thing you've also written about is um, your last company was bootstrapped. This company's venture backed. Talk about how you see the differences there, or what's what's missed in in that calculation.
1: One of the times that I deeply miss Twitter over the last five days that I've not been on it <laughs> is when people say things, um, you know, disparaging things about about the world of venture capital. Uh, I'm not going to name any names that would, you know, a three letter uh, acronym when you bootstrap, you can't run into a wall at a hundred miles an hour. You run into a wall at one and a half miles an hour, because what enables you to run into a wall at hundred miles an hour is, is, is burn. Um, meaning when you're spending X million dollars a month and all of a sudden, um, you, you run out of money tomorrow. Bootstrapping drives a lot of, um, uh, creativity and, and everything. And, you know, <laughs> Also, when I was sixteen, growing up in New Jersey and wanting to start an auto parts business, I couldn't have raised venture capital. I didn't know it existed, and it's not a venture backed business. I think it comes down—the difference between the two comes down to what you want out of life, out of your professional career. In running this business, I ran this business from start to finish for fifteen years, from when I was sixteen to when I was thirty-one. You. Spend bootstrapping, you spend a lot of time waiting. The problem with uh, a high growth bootstrap business is that if your business is growing hundred percent year over year, and let's say you have, you know, 50% margins, all of your money goes back into buying inventory. And then you pay taxes on your earnings, even though all of your money went back in inventory. I'm talking about a physical product business, but same, you know, for, for software, it could go, you know, with, with hiring other people. And I've realized that what makes me feel happiest or most fulfilled or whatever you want to call it uh, in life is not being resource constrained. So to try and give a tangible example of this, if if you've ever played a video game like SimCity or something and you start off and you like build a little square of residential property and then you wait for it to make more money and then you go and and do more and do more and do more. That's sort of what bootstrapping is like. Um, And a lot of your time is spent uh, waiting now, it might not feel like that because you're actually doing a bunch of busy work that actually is not that important, but you're not doing these things that go out and, and, and drive revenue. Certainly, there's exceptions to this. I'm making sort of blanket statements. With bootstrapping, you, you basically uh, get into this place where you have, when I had this auto parts business, I had many more millions of dollars worth of ideas uh, than I had millions of dollars in the bank to go out and build them. Um, and so you have to constantly sort of um, uh, build up more capital in order to do the things that you want to do. Um, and that was great. I walked away with, you know, from the business with 100% of, of all the proceeds of selling it. And I found a great buyer and everything worked out really well. But with the world of venture, all of a sudden, someone gives you all of the resources that you need. And if you can prove that you are constrained by resources... You can go out and get more resources from the same people or from new people, and we have, you know, investors first round and SUSE Ventures and Bloomberg Beta and now USV, um, who are who are great about this. And as long as you have a reasonable set of investors, they will continue to fund you as long as you can uh, prove that you can effectively deploy the resources that you're, that they're giving you. Um, and so I think like bootstrapping for me is basically the equivalent of, of of playing this game with with one or both hands tied tied behind your back. And why? You know, well, all the common reasons that people say, uh, I think, um, uh, don't really pan out all that well. So people say, you know, you could take home all of the money. Sure. But you're going to have a much smaller outcome. So does that really matter? People talk about how bad it is to have investors. That just hasn't been my experience at all. And I could talk about what it's like to manage investors and, and, and strategies for that and how people, you know, tend to get over their skis and, and in trouble with those things. Um, but I think, um, broadly like the, it's, it's a myth that investors are, are the worst thing in the world. Um, and I think that also building a bootstrap business is not the easiest thing.
0: Yeah. One thing Leo from SUSE said to me in preparing for this is that you're very thoughtful about internal capital allocation. Uh, how do you, how do you think about that? Perhaps different than, than other entrepreneurs or perhaps different than, than you have in the past. He was referring to you using an agency. Uh, to help with one of your core tasks.
1: Yeah, when I started Steady, people said I had a a founder say to me, "Don't pay an engineer, any senior engineer, more than one hundred thirty five thousand dollars a year, because you're just going to get mercenaries and they're going to be people who just want to make a bunch of money and all this stuff." And I look back on that. I mean, that was the, probably the worst single piece of advice I've ever gotten. And what happened early on, this is you know maybe three three four three years ago, is we had the opportunity to hire this incredible engineer. He uh, had a job at Twitter at the time and said, "I need to make uh, one hundred seventy thousand dollars." He, you know, had a family and all this stuff. He said, "I need to make one hundred seventy thousand dollars in order to leave," and I was like, "You know, you have a million dollar pre seed in the bank, and you're like, my God, you know, that's almost twenty percent of my money, and and all this stuff. And how am I going to be able to 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 correctly allocate this capital?" Well. Um, I offered him 145 and six months went by, he said, no, six months went by and I didn't find anyone nearly as good during that time period. And you start to realize in order to save, you know, $25,000 over that time period or whatever it is, um, I've, I've given up six months of productivity of, of, of one engineer. Um, I think one thing like, uh, that that startups do not do well is optimizing for spending uh, uh, money on salaries. I think that team is everything. Everybody agrees that team is everything. Who pays that way? I think Naval had a tweet like that. Everybody says the recruiting is the most important thing. How many startups uh, below 10 or 15 people have a VP of people? Um, and I mean, like, you know, not, uh, someone who has a VP title, but, but really someone who's owning recruiting, um, in conjunction with the founder and thinking about this stuff on a day to day basis. So we've kept burn relatively low, I'd say. But, uh, aside from that, I think that we've, we've spent money in some unusual ways. Uh, so one of those is we have a VP people. Um, he was the head of global workplace operations at Slack before this. And, you know, at a, a company of, of 13 people, well, he was, I think we had, he was maybe the eighth person or something like that. It's an unusual hire. But then you look at our team and we have, you know, two people from Google and three people from Amazon and two people from Twitter and two people from Pivotal and, and all this sort of stuff. All of a sudden you, you, you realize that, you know, not doing that would have been a pretty crazy call. What Leo from SUSE was talking about was while we were building this level of talent density, it takes time because it's hard to get people to join when you have three people. But eventually you reach this inflection point where you have a bunch of people who can sit around the table and everybody can say, This is the group, the best group of people that I've ever worked with. And all of a sudden, when they can say that, an engineer will go out to the previous people they've worked with and say, Hey, this is the best people I've ever worked with. There's no exception. And they can say that without, you know, uh, uh, you know, any sort of caveat. Oh, well, there's, there's this one person is really difficult and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, this flywheel starts to turn in the interim period, though. There's this great book by uh, uh, Will Larson at Stripe who talks about um, I think it's called um, "An Elegant Puzzle: Systems of Engineering Management." And one of my big takeaways from the book is that you really need a team of like you know six to eight engineers in order to make progress on a very complicated problem within a company. And what do you do as a startup before you're at that point? Um, well, for us, what we ended up doing, I said like we we can't hire you know contractors and really work all that well. What can we do in order to accelerate things? Well, there are certain consulting agencies which are, which are fantastic, um, but they charge, you know, $32,000 a month per engineer. Uh, and that was, I looked at our backlog. I said, what if we could buy our entire backlog for $250,000 over the next X number of months? That makes a lot of sense. And that was something that we did. It was great.
0: Yeah. The, what is the, uh, Ace Ventura theory for startups?
1: The first Ace Ventura movie was, was great. It was like a good plot. I don't know if you remember at the end, you know, Einhorn is Finkel, Finkel is Einhorn. And uh, and there's a love story going on. And there's that, you know, tragic death that happens. And like, sure, there's, you know, silly slapstick stuff and all that that happens in between. And the second Ace Ventura, which I think is the same director, same screenwriter, was terrible. I mean, it's just like 99% slapstick. There's like almost no plot. It's just like the whole movie's a joke. Another example of this is uh, is Mission Impossible. Do you remember the first Mission Impossible movie? It's like a slow burn um, suspense movie and like there was some sort of stunts in it. But for the most part, like this is a, a plot heavy movie. I think people say there's this idea of like, oh, um, some people just get lucky. I disagree with that. I don't think you get lucky and make Ace Ventura or Mission Impossible or, uh, you know, or, or, or some sort of great startup. But definitely there's a a large subset of founders and founders in in anything, in movies and whatever, who don't understand what it is that made them successful. And so when you don't understand what made you successful, you might as well have just been lucky. Because if you want to go and do it again, um, all of a sudden you, you might have the talent, but you don't have the taste in order to figure out what are the things that are important and what aren't. I think this doesn't just happen happen from company to company, I think it happens from from company stage to company stage, which is why you see these really promising companies go out and they raise 15-20 million bucks at the series A and you know they have product market fit and and or at least the illusion of product market fit and uh, a couple of years go by or 6 months goes by and they're out of money. There's only one explanation for that in my opinion and that's that they didn't really understand the things that made them successful, they doubled down on things that don't make sense and didn't invest enough in, in the things that do.
0: Yeah. And so there's a lesson there. Be mindful of what got you here. (laughs) It's almost the opposite of what got you here. won't get you there in some sense, like appreciate what got you here. And if it is something that will get you there, double down on
1: it. I don't know. I don't, I'll I'll get, I'll give an answer that's maybe not going to be that popular. Um, You know, Charlie Munger was talking about um, poor Charlie's almanac. And someone said like, who do you recommend? you know, should read this book. And he said, most people who read this book are hopeless and and are, you know, not going to really, are are not going to be successful whether they read this book or not. And I mean, he's Charlie Munger is the savage, but um, I think like if you as an operator can't naturally understand the things that are working for you and the things that aren't, I think about the same way as relationships. If I'm in a relationship with someone and they want um, some, something adjusted, you want to hold hands more. You want to hold hands less. You want to do this. You want to do that. Sure. If it's a 20 or 30% adjustment, I'm all in. Um, but if you're looking for a 180 degree change, I've used to be, I'll sign up for that too. Great. You know, I love the feedback. We here at Cantor Enterprises care deeply about your feedback. Why don't you be a happy customer? We're going to do whatever it takes. And you realize this it's just like not sustainable. And I think uh, when uh when it comes to these things, if you're so far off, um, that you can run your company into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour, uh, because you don't understand what's making you successful. M- maybe it's hopeless. Let me give you the optimistic case. That, that's a pessimistic case. The optimistic case is that premature scaling kills startups. Um, premature scaling can be any number of, of things. It can be, uh, hiring people too fast. It can be, uh, expanding to, to more, um, product types. It can be, um, uh, you know, offering more features. All these things are examples of premature scaling. So the number one thing you could do is, is to limit premature scaling as much as possible. I use the framework of just in time instead of just in case. Um, just in time comes from inventory, just in case. I don't know where that comes from, but it's the idea that, uh, it's, it's, you want to be extremely mindful to add things only when you really need them. The most dangerous thing is that even if you have a just-in-time mindset, it's really easy to sort of package up just-in-case things alongside of it where you you can justify one thing and then you're sort of like, well, I could do this other thing at the same time, and it sort of sneaks through.
0: Yeah, It is interesting, um, going back to Twitter, it's and maybe this, this is probably an exception that proves the rule, they didn't really understand necessarily what made them successful, or maybe they did and never wanted to change the product ever again. <laughs> but it's interesting that products can sometimes succeed despite themselves.
1: Yeah, that's the whole idea of, um, of the last 20 years in Silicon Valley. It's basically find a product that's so good a ham sandwich can run it. Um, and that you're, you know, to use the, the Warren Buffett quote, but basically, you know, product market fit is an antidote for stupidity is what uh, people say. Well, it turns out, um, that's only the case with, uh, you know, you have to modify it by saying product market fit is an antidote for stupidity as long as your gross margins are above 57%. And if your margins are not above that, there's actually you have to be pretty smart about the way you run the business. And, you know, there's this great reckoning in, in tech right now that's happening where people are saying, oh, um, oops, it, it turns out that gross margins are actually very important. Doesn't mean you can't build a great business. Um, you know, we're sitting here in a WeWork. Doesn't mean you can't great build a great business with with uh, with more challenging unit economics like uh, like WeWork or Uber or something like that. You just have to be operating in a different sort of fashion. And there's a lot less margin for error. That's why I call it margin for error. You know, it's like a lot less margin for error.
0: And is WeWork just a business that was way overvalued? But hey, it's it's a great business. Or is it like a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> or where, where uh, in that it was never going to be sort of make sense from a economic perspective?
1: You probably know more than I do. Um, what I would say in the in the case of we were, I mean, it obviously solves a huge need. Um, you know, there's there's no shortage of demand for it. Of course, there's like the Bill Gurley thought, which is customers love when you're selling dollars for eighty cents yep. um, based on the prices and and everything, and, and looking at some of the financials. I don't think they're selling dollars for eighty cents. But, hey, maybe this is a great example of premature scaling. And I'm not sure it's necessarily premature scaling on the office front. Yeah. They, pre- they, they scaled to all these other things and, and, uh, or, or they expanded to all these other things. I think the number one thing that founders can do is to limit the surface area of what they're working on. Right. Um, and that comes from ideas in manufacturing, which is, say, I'm going to limit the work in process um, because uh, otherwise you know things start to get out of control. Uh, the allure of doing things in parallel is thinking, um, oh, I can reduce my chances of, of catastrophic failure. Oh, I can get these things done because I have the resources to do them. But the reality is that when you divide your attention two ways, you don't get 50, 50, you get 40, 40, you divide it at three ways. You get 25, 25, 25, you divide it four ways. You get zero. Like it's, it's a matter of, of these things don't work the way you think. Um, and the temptation is always to, to do more and add new things. And, you know, we, we thankfully have great investors, but you do get this pressure from investors where, um, uh, in, in both ways where you say, uh, if you're doing one thing and staying focused on it, they say, Hey, why don't you do these other things? If you're doing multiple things, they say, why don't you do one? Um, so you're going to get a lot of conflicting advice. And I think, um, it's important to, to, to hold the line.
0: Yeah. We were talking about before this podcast, map versus territory re- responding to advice. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: The way I've heard it put is, let's say you and I want to go to Everest and we take out an atlas. I know people don't use atlases anymore, but if there were one here, we take out the atlas and we study it. We, you know, read all about these maps for, you know, 12 days and we go out there. The amount that that's going to help us out on Everest is pretty much zero. Versus if you take someone who's climbed, you know, uh, 17 different uh, mountains that are uh, not anywhere in the vicinity of uh, of Everest, that actually probably is going to help quite a bit, even though it's it's from a map standpoint very far away. It's just the idea of, of map versus terrain. I think the problem is, you know, you had asked originally, what should founders do from an ideation standpoint? The problem is uh, that a lot of founders who are who are, you know, sort of browsing around markets looking for an idea – is, or maybe you're, you're in this space and you see something sort of adjacent is that you're getting this map level view and the map level view is not going to work anymore. Almost every time I bring this up, everybody disagrees with me. So, um, I'm curious what you think, I'm curious what your reaction will be. Um, I think that the, that the ideas that don't require domain expertise are, are pretty much picked over. I think that the last, you know, 15 years of, of startups, you know, you get. Um, and in no way do I mean to say Mark Zuckerberg, anybody could have started Facebook. I absolutely think he's, you know, an incredible founder and all this stuff, but you don't need domain expertise to start a social media app because everybody has domain expertise. You have many social connections. Um, now I think a total hermit in the middle of the woods probably shouldn't start a so- social media app, but for the most part, people have connections. You know, Twitter's another example of that. There's uh, there's lots and lots of examples of, of this that that have happened over the last 20 years, but part of the reason i think that we're seeing this renaissance in the enterprise b2b space is not because like magically the time for enterprise and b2b has gone has come it's you know sure there's this uh, confluence of events with you know you can build things out with uh, with aws and um and all this but but broadly it's that there's a lot of the other ideas are gone and now that'll change with, you know, whatever the next iteration of, of of technologies that come out are, you know, and if you believe the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain and all that, maybe that's then and all of a sudden we could build social media apps again and we could build all this stuff. But I think it's much less about, uh, you know, tech monopoly and, and and more just about people are doing a pretty good job of building out these things that don't require domain expertise. So the number one thing you can do is learn a lot about a domain.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it's true and not, not true. True in the sense that Um, a lot of low hanging fruit is gone and and software is now, you know, eating the world. And so interacting with the built world of which requires, uh, domain expertise and ability to, you know, uh, as you know, it's eating other industries. You have to know those other other industries that it's eating. Um, at the same time, those same people who were building social networks are now building things in healthcare and FinTech and and B2B and they've, you know, had had to learn it. But also there is sort of a, uh, benefit sometimes that comes from, you know, beginner's mind. Uh, spaces where if you're an expert, you would never build a company because it's, it's failed for the last, you know, two decades or it hasn't been a company. And some of these more green founders are more naive, uh, in, in a good way where, uh, things where now it's actually the right time to build a business in that space and their lack of expertise helps them even start the company in the first place.
1: I think that's the mantra that's out there of beginner's mind and all this stuff. <laughs> um, I, I don't see it playing out that well the way I see it when I talk to founders who don't. Have a lot of domain expertise is like definitely I see the uh, uh naiveness. Yeah. Not sure I see the good kind of naiveness. You it, know, it's it's a matter of um you have to know uh enough to understand the terrain. Yeah. But you have to know not enough to be too scared of it.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And um and I think it definitely comes in from an investor standpoint. Yeah. So for example, um, the people who have been least receptive to what we're doing and like we've had an easy time, relatively easy time fundraising compared to, um, you know, other stories that you hear. Uh, and, and part of that is due just to the massive market size of, you know, every business to business transaction. Um, but the people who are most resistant to it are the people who know absolutely nothing about the space and people who know everything about the space um and everywhere in the middle people you know go rabbit for it but in the in, you know at the at the extremes and you know uh, I won't name a name but um there's someone who is like uh a, uh a, a, you know operating role at a physical product company um who who had to implement these sort of systems before and we just couldn't get to a place of you know their response was, was, this is too hard. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's hard when you're that close to the problem.
0: Totally. Going back to something we were talking about earlier, uh, when the, the book, uh, Blitzscaling comes out, it's too late. And I'm using this as a, as a metaphor. But, but even the example of Blitzscaling specifically, is it, is your point there that the, uh, lesson was wrong or that the lesson was right? But as soon as everyone understands it, it's no longer relevant. Uh,
1: Blitzscaling is, obviously indisputably the correct strategy for many companies in a backward looking standpoint from a backward looking standpoint. Why is it? Why is that no longer the case uh, is an interesting question. Um, I think part of it is uh, uh, some of the businesses that are coming out today have lower unit economics. Uh, and I think like when you're, when your unit economics are not as good, blitz scaling obviously doesn't work as, as well. Uh, because you don't have this uh, high gross margin and product market fit heals all wounds. You have this problem of oh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, the business doesn't look as, as great as it did in these other cases. I think, again, part of this comes from my hypothesis that some of the businesses of uh, of lower complexity are picked over at this point, And so you're dealing with businesses of higher complexity. Let's take one element of blitzscaling, which is to say, uh, let's say you have this enterprise uh, uh, B2B app, like Flexport. And uh, uh, so I was an advisor and then an investor in Flexport, and Ryan from Flexport's an investor in Steady. I think it's an amazing business. I was like an early user of the product with with my auto parts business. And Flexport's an example of they built some great software. um, And then you come to this realization, I'm guessing, I haven't talked to Ryan about this, where, um, you can actually add a bunch of people to do the things that the software can't do and deliver the same customer experience to, uh, the same level of customer experience that the customers need, uh, with those people instead of with software. So this is uh, like a, a positive framing of the idea. Let's throw people at the problem. And, um, this strategy works really, really well provided that the people can provide the same level of, uh, of service or, or of, um, satisfaction to customer demands. You know, the example of this is let's say you, uh, upload some image to a, to, to an app and you need it retouched and it's going to come back in eight seconds. Does it, it doesn't matter to you as the customer, as the user of the app, whether or not, uh, you know, machine learning, some machine learning algorithm did that, or whether, uh, someone on Amazon mechanical Turk did that retouching as long as it shows up in the right way. You can always figure out how to build the software later. Um, but in businesses of higher product complexity, now, um, what Flexport does is very com- complex from a process standpoint, um, and, and everything, but, uh, but, but people are quite good at solving those problems. When you're dealing with the sort of business that we're in, where it's, um, a very high transaction volume. So you're not going to see, you know, billions of, of, of freight shipments a day, um, from a single carrier. I mean, maybe someday they will. Um, but, but for us, you know, you could see that sort of, uh, transaction, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of things. And you cannot throw enough people at the problem in order to process those in such a way or onboard that number of people in such a way, uh, that you could still provide great, let's call it, get great NPS from your customers. And so I think, um, uh what it is is that uh blitz scaling works really well for things that you can throw people at the problem and maintain high NPS. And I think that we're just past a lot of those things. So I do think that there's gonna be companies with with great unit economics and and a you know, manageable amount of complexity, um, or a low enough sort of transaction volume with a high enough ticket size that you can do that, but they're few and far between.
0: And so the next version of that book is hire fewer people, maintain good gross margins. Like what's the, what's that version of book like five years from now or something? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I love this question. Um, If you think about the idea of blitzscaling, they don't say, you know, hire a bunch of, you know, terrible people or anything like that. They're saying like aggregate, um, if you could assign a value of output on each person from one to 10, aggregate the the largest number of 7.5s and above that you possibly can and, and, you know, have a good North Star and, and all this stuff. That's probably a gross oversimplification of the book that you know somebody who wrote it would be would be upset by it. But that's a you know sort of the basic idea. I think what the future looks like as we're building um, uh, more and more complex software that needs to more and more complex things is um, aggregate, get the best talent density that you possibly can. And I think that that's a very different problem if we're saying, you know, again, assuming you could perfectly measure these things with some sort of a litmus test, you know, aggregate uh, nines and tens. Uh, and and you can't do that with 10 people, um, but I meaning you can't build anything with 10 people, but you might need, uh, you know, 25 or 50 or 100 or, or 200 people. Um, there are examples of this, like look at Renaissance Technologies. You know, it's not a software company, but what they have 300 people or something like that, and it's enormously uh, profitable trading firm the second piece of it is i think we're just i think we're in the most exciting time of building software of course every time is the most exciting time of building software because of the nature of how software works but i'm uh, obsessed with this idea of of, uh, of 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 managed services or or um what's called a, a serverless service full architecture and um I don't know, I, I don't remember how technical you are, but have you read about like AWS Lambda and all this sort of new sort of of, of, of compute power that that AWS and the other cloud providers are providing?
0: I've not read right about it. I've, I've heard a little bit about it.
1: So the idea is that um, you used to have a uh, server uh, in, your da- you know, in, in your data center and then someone else ran the data center and then there's the, the cloud and then there was containers. And they've sort of reduced that down to... Uh, probably getting down to the smallest atomic unit and what an AWS lambda function is is it's a uh, it's like an ephemeral server where you can put your code into this uh, package. Um, it actually literally gets put into a zip file you put your code there and then lambda has an API that you can hit and it'll invoke that code. And so the idea is you wouldn't run all of Salesforce in a single Lambda function. That wouldn't be possible. You would break up an application like Salesforce or, or any modern um, software service into um, a pretty reasonable atomic unit, like a little microservice or what some people would call a nanoservice. And then you can invoke that function um, on demand. So a key characteristic of, of something like AWS Lambda is that it costs nothing at rest. So, uh, if you have a million different lambda functions and they're not getting used, um, it would cost you zero dollars uh, for that month. What it costs you is twenty cents for a million requests. Enormously cheap. I mean, it's it's something that it, it's 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 hard to get out of AWS's free tier with this thing. But what people miss when you talk about serverless is people think that uh, serverless is some buzzword and you know really uh, why is this such a big deal? If I were to take my application running on a single EC2 instance in AWS, and I carve it into 25 different Lambda functions. All I've done is saved cost, assuming that I have some variable amount of demand. Maybe I've also given myself the ability to scale up you know, more than before without having operational headaches, but I really haven't gotten all that much. And this is why most people look at serverless and say, this doesn't really matter for startups. The better description of serverless is what people are calling serverless serviceful architectures. Um, and if you think about what does a common application to have, you know, we're going to forget some things. But basically, let's say you have a, a web app. Um, maybe you have a mobile app. You have a, a authentication with login and password. Um, maybe you've got some sort of a queuing system. Uh, you've got a, a database and persistence. You've got an API. All the things that make up this, this stack. The way, uh, companies used to get started is you'd spin up some, you know, Rails monolith and, and, uh, uh, you'd build all these things in Rails and Rails gives you all these nice things for, you know, like devise for the authentication and all this stuff that play nicely in this Ruby world. But as you get bigger, the code base gets bigger. It gets mired down in complexity that happens from these monolithic architectures. What the idea is behind, um, a, a serverless serviceful architecture is that AWS, if you've ever browsed through their catalog of services they offer, they probably offer, I don't know, maybe a hundred different services. Um, most people don't even know, you know, a, a, a quarter of them. So AWS offers something called AWS Cognito, which is a, a hosted um, authentication service. It's something like, uh, like Auth0, if you've heard of that. Uh, they have a queuing system called SQS, Simple Queuing Service. They have a notification thing called SNS, Simple Notification System ser- Service. Um, simple email service, they have uh, databases, they have API Gateway, which is a hosted API, and all these components. So what this ends up looking like, if you say I'm going to build it in this fashion, is you are eating the application code with services. So you mentioned software is eating the world, um, it's sort of AWS is eating your application. And what a proper system looks like, uh, which is how we're we're building software at Steady, is uh, you start off um, first with writing, using every off-the-shelf AWS service that you possibly can. And then the remainder is basically your intellectual property. It's your your business logic. And that business logic you run in a Lambda function. And the whole idea here is that uh, code is not an asset. Code is liability. And so, um, uh, and what I mean by that is it needs to be maintained. It's, you know, there's security vulnerabilities, there's patches. Um, if you use, if you write your own authentication system today, um, you have to make it better all the time. If it's not getting better all the time, it's getting relatively worse compared to not only your competitors, but you know, how Google drive works and all this, you're competing against all of their software for usability. So I would rather have AWS do that, uh, than, than, than for us to do that especially if you're going to try and maintain this level of talent density. If you have 50 of the best engineers you ever worked with, they don't want to work on your three-year-old legacy authentication system. They want to be working on the, the most interesting piece of your stack. The only way to only have interesting things in your entire stack is to pass off all the undifferentiated heavy lifting to somebody else. I think this is the thing that's not being talked about. And I think it's actually to go back to the concept of legibility. I, I think it's a legibility problem where people look at, um, AWS and say, this is complicated. What is, you know, what is I am? What is, uh, cloud formation? What, you know, what is all this language that AWS is using? Someone on Twitter, maybe a month or two ago, had this great insight. They said, um, you would never pick up a book written in Chinese or French and say, This is stupid. This makes no sense. It's another language. Yet someone looks at a language like Clojure or a Java developer looks at a language like, like uh, JavaScript and says, this makes no sense. This is stupid. Well, of course it's not. It makes sense to the people who are, who are using it. It doesn't make sense to you. So it's a legibility problem. And I think the legibility problem that AWS has, it's you know a customer problem that they have to solve, um, is uh, for us a tremendous competitive advantage because we are building in this modern way, which is actually how Amazon and AWS build software. And so you could sort of grasp uh, and and sort of um, tether yourself to the AWS Amazon uh, freight train uh, and let it pull you along by giving them, you know, ownership over 80% of your code base.
0: So is this for everybody or what's the category of entrepreneurs or companies that should look into using serverless? What's the best way to start?
1: Um, I think it's uh, the right choice for anybody who's not in a land grab situation. I think there's, um, you know, we've paid an enormous I was going to say we paid an enormous tax in in terms of uh, early feature velocity to to do this. Um, the better way of saying it, I guess, would be we've invested a lot in order, you know, to get feature velocity over the long term. So the question is, as a startup, uh, over what time period do you need to be fast? Now, if you're Uber and Lyft, uh, you know, I, I sort of divide companies into two categories. If you're Uber and Lyft, you're in a knife fight against your competitor every day, it, you know, these are the businesses where you need to work 18 hours a day because if you work 17 hours a day, one hour a day, you're falling behind. There's other businesses uh, like our business where certainly you know it's it's also important to uh, put in put in the work, um, but you're having to maintain feature velocity over a very very long period of time. The reason for that is there's not three different transaction types, there's 300. There's not five different integrations that you have to build. There's every business system on the planet. And so for us, like, we're not interested in building a $10 billion niche integrations platform. We're interested in building the substrate upon which the entire physical product economy is built, not just the physical product economy, but the entire service economy, and all the different business to business transactions we want to flow through our platform. So for us, it makes sense in investing in the thing that's going to give us the highest feature velocity over time. We talked about this idea of, of uh, of, um, bootstrapping versus, uh, versus having investors. I think the most important thing that I set out from, from day one, uh, with, uh, with dealing with our, um, you know, investors, uh, was saying, I'm going to, I made this commitment to myself. I'm going to tell investors bad news as soon as it happens or before it happens. And I'm going to tell investors good news after it happens. And so that's really hard to do in like the first six to twelve months because investors say, like, what sort of you know, what sort of contracts are you land, you know, working on? Who do you think you're gonna hire and all this and it's tempting, you know, to say, well, like we're we're this close to signing this agreement with this uh, this company or something like that. One thing I learned in the world of, you know, B2E sales, which I did before at the auto parts business, was that of deals that seem 99% likely to close, 50% of them go through. Yeah. Um, and so you just have to be disciplined about it. And it's about, like many other things, getting through that initial period of discomfort. And then you get into a cadence with your investors where your investors understand what sort of business you're in. And I think like that's one of the great things about having investors who are thoughtful, experienced, unflappable, you know, maybe operators, maybe not. Uh, is that they understand whether you're in a knife fight or whether you're you're trying to build for the long term?
0: Are there any other frameworks you have for managing investors or or thinking about that that relationship? I
1: was going to say my favorite question in business. My favorite question in life is uh, is this question of what's not being said, and what's not being said kills companies, it kills relationships, it kills funds, it kills everything. And I don't mean taking the thing that's like not sayable because it's not acceptable and saying it sometimes. Yes. Um, But uh, what it is, is let's say you and I are on this podcast and we're talking back and forth and I'm having this dialogue sort of with myself in the back of my head. I'm saying, man, I don't think this guy likes me very much. (laughs) Chances are you're either thinking the same thing um, or the opposite. Um, So you're probably thinking this guy doesn't like me very much, or you're thinking, "Wow, this guy talks too much. (laughs) And so you think that you have these secrets that are happening. Everybody thinks these magical powers of perception that are happening. Uh, and, and in reality, like we're both in this sort of uh, uh, dance together. So uh, this applies to startups in, in the way that um, you, you know, as a founder, you know, you might be thinking like... Ooh, I'm, you know, sort of worried so-and-so is going to quit, or uh, maybe we didn't make the right technology choice, or, uh, or maybe we need to raise money sooner than we thought, or maybe we don't have a good product market fit as, 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 you know, I'm, I'm saying we do. Everybody else at the company knows this. If you, if you have, you know, a a, a, a bright team, everybody at the company knows this. And so your job as the founder is to listen for the things that are not being said and just to say them yeah. and it's actually a big relief for everybody And then once you say those things you can you can attack the, the the problems and and work on them similar with investors If you are worried that your investors or your customers or whatever uh, Are are thinking something you just bring it up yeah. And and people think that by not bringing it up the problem doesn't exist or the problem's going to go away or nobody else Realize that that's where your stress comes from. I think like I have a relatively This is the lowest stress thing I've ever done because it used to be that, you know, for 15 years, the auto parts business, I was almost running out of money all the time. Um, And I had no one to, you know, no one to work with and all this stuff. I I, I think that things don't need to be that hard.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Just in difficult conversations in general, you sometimes it is the, hey, what's not being said, let's have that conversation and we can move more frictionlessly because of it. Other times it's, hey, maybe we should let sleeping dogs lie and just like move on and bringing it up might create friction that maybe the other person wasn't thinking about that or had moved on from that. Do you have a framework for, well, first just want to met a point. You strike me as, as the type of person who makes a lot of rela- uh, analogies between business and relationships, which I, I do too. And I really enjoy that.
1: Bus- business, it's, you know, it's easy to say, but business is relationships. Um, and I think that a hallmark of a good strategy, uh, is that it applies in many different places. Yeah. It's that idea of recursive and repetitive symmetry again. And, um, you know, something that we care a lot about at Steady is what, what I call zero-touch operations. And I uh, frame this by—a um it's, it's a lot of these things are best framed with thought experiments where you say, if all of us from Steady were to be transported to an alternate dimension tomorrow, how many days, weeks, months, years would it be before— Customers, vendors, partners, investors, regulators notice that we were gone, and you realize that this starts by asking this question. You can rank all the things that you're doing. You're basically pressing buttons. You're making you know uh, uh, decisions and pressing buttons in order to keep things going. So this is something that's important to us internally because we don't want to have a 10,000 person organization. We want to build. We want to build the Navy SEALs. We want to build this, this, uh, uh the smaller group of people who use the infrastructure that's been built before us in order to accomplish great things. Well, that actually applies to our customers too. So it's not just internal, it's external, meaning we want our customers to have zero touch operations. We don't want our customers to be pressing buttons. Um, and when I, you know, had this auto parts business and I signed up with the three different EDI providers, the three different EDI providers, they're, could not wrap their heads around the fact that I wanted a purchase order to come in from Amazon and I wanted it to go into my business system without me reviewing it. And that just blew their minds. And so the idea of zero-touch operations, um, I think, is is one of these things that, that can, can apply both internally and externally. It's like when you live that truth internally, it also helps your customers. I think the same thing with relationships and all this sort of stuff. Why should things apply at work, um, and not at home? I think you can take this too far. I know people who do, you know, uh, the 360s and all this stuff at oh, home. Not sure that's a great thing, but then again, we don't do 360s at work. Wait, wait, wait.
0: And why not? Yeah. How, how do you guys do feedback or, or why not?
1: Yeah. Um, I can add to my list now, now that I'm remembering of things that, uh, things that we don't do. We don't have performance reviews. We don't have, um, uh, anything like that. And here's the reason we talked about that Valley of mismatch idea earlier. Software architecture has changed and we're moving towards this idea of event driven architecture. I'll give you an example. So we work with, um, we integrate with NetSuite and NetSuite's up and accounting and order management and um, financial system. And it's very old. It was built, you know, founded in 1998 and when a new purchase order is created in NetSuite, a new transaction is created in NetSuite, it does not send us a notification saying, hey, we have a new purchase order. Uh, what we have to do is pull the API. We have to you know, query the API every minute or five minutes and say, hey, show me all the new orders that happened from the last time. Um, this might sound you know, uh, painful and hilarious to developers today, but this is just the way that they used to build systems. They didn't build them from an event-driven way you work with a system like Stripe, you want to integrate with that. When a new transaction happens in Stripe, they send off what's called a webhook. And a webhook is basically events saying, hey, we have this new transaction. And so the way we build our software internally is, is in an event-driven way. Um, and so when a new transaction gets created in Steady, it triggers an event. And that event can be used to send an email to someone or a text message to someone or uh, a transaction off to NetSuite. So This is a great example of how I think companies are being built in the wrong way. You've got these brilliant engineers and brilliant product people and brilliant founders, technical or somewhat technical, who are building these event-driven architectures from a product and and engineering standpoint, but they don't have an event-driven culture or an event-driven financial system. So most talk to most people, the way they deal with their financials is, uh, they, they roll up these things in bulk and they push them into their system in, in journal entries, um, or they have a monthly reconciliation or something like that. Why are we not doing event-driven accounting? Um, another word for it is, is continuous accounting. So we, we deploy, um, every, we deploy our software continuous integration, continuous deployment. A lot of people do this today. Every time a new Commit is merged to master. Uh, Every time a new pull request is merged to master, it rolls out to production. Yet, every time a new transaction happens to your bank, it doesn't automatically go into your ERP system. Why is that? I'm getting back to the question you asked, uh, which is uh, how do we do um, performance reviews? So, someone pointed out, I've never had a job. I worked, you know, I started this auto parts business in high school. I ran it as a side business through college. And when I graduated, I ran that full time. So, it's not that I'm I'm actually not that creative in terms of how I think about doing these things. It's just that I don't I don't I have to make it all up. I have no idea. I don't know how a meeting's supposed to be run. I don't know how these things are supposed to be done. So the idea that like you and I are working together and you're doing something that is good or you're doing something that's bad or you're working suboptimally, and that like we, you know, walk away from that and I'm like, man, you know, three Thursdays from now. It's going to be really important that I that I make you aware of that. To me, that's like this old poll based architecture where you're saying like I'm come up with a bunch of stuff for a batch job and I'd come up and I'd bring it to you at once. We just talk about things as they happen. Um, there's this saying in in the world of DevOps: uh, if it hurts, do it more often. Everybody thinks if it hurts, do it less often terrible advice. Um, um, you know, there's, there's the analogies to physical fitness and things like that. You go for a run, it hurts terribly. Well, you know, if you run every day for six months, it's actually going to feel probably pretty good. Now I've probably, you know, incensed a bunch of people who hate cardio and think weightlifting's, you know, good, but similarly, you get sore. If you let weightlift once in a while, you weightlift every day, it feels really good. Um, so I think, uh, uh, a lot of these concepts can be applied in different ways. And I just think that it's not necessary. Um, I don't think it's necessary to batch these things.
0: And similar with meetings, how, how do you coordinate? With is it all async?
1: Uh, no, we we have event driven meetings, which is uh, you know if um, it's very rare that we have everybody in us in a single meeting. And and it it was tough, certainly tough to get here, but the best systems are 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 not built; they're grown. And uh, Leo uh, from Susa Ventures is one of our uh, one of our investors. He talks about this. He had a, he had a post on his blog some years ago called uh, "Startup Cargo Cults." Have you read that? Yeah. Um, he talks about for those of you who don't know what um, cargo cults are. It's the idea. I forget after which which war this was, but we used to you know fly over certain remote parts of the world and we would drop uh, food and supplies and stuff for the troops on the ground, and we would build airstrips and, and all that. Well, after the war ended, the you know indigenous tribes in the area. Well, they missed the food and the supplies being dropped. So what they would do is they would, you know, clear a bunch of land and they would set up these fake runways and control towers and stuff. And they'd stand there waiting for the planes to land. Of course, they never did because like just by imitating the behavior, you don't get the the value of the thing, you know, necessarily because you haven't imitated the purpose of it. you don't understand the purpose. And I think things like uh, daily standups and all this, all this stuff, a lot of it is um, imitating Habits from other places without understanding the nature behind it all. So my engineers made fun of me recently because they read the Agile Manifesto one day when I was not when I was not in. And someone said, this is exactly word for word what Zach <laughs> believes. But I hate Agile. And I say, well, it's fine. Like as long as we come up with it ourselves. That's fine because it means that we understand the purpose of it. And so I'm not opposed to meetings. There's no, like, no meeting rule. It's just that meetings should come from a need. I'm not opposed to, um, uh, to product planning. It's just that that should come because we have a lot of smart people and we, people are so frustrated that they can't get the work done that they need to, that they devise a process. And like from that pain, incredible things come. And so I think, um, you know, it's like the, you know, it sounds like we read a lot of the same books, um, order without design and all these great books about building cities. You would think if we get a bunch of very smart people together, we survey all of the, the constituents and we go out and we, we build the city from scratch versus we just, you know, so, sort of let a bunch of people say, do whatever you want. What do you think the outcome is going to be? You know, what do you think the better outcome would be? Well, the naive answer is to say, of course it's going to be, you get a bunch of the geniuses together and, and design something that's going to be do better. But then you look at a uh you know a, 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 a ancient Rome yeah. versus a master plan community in Texas <laughs> you know and it doesn't even come close, yeah. so I think part of that um you know so much about building something great is being comfortable going through these periods of discomfort and you have to sort of go through the discomfort of of uh having a bit of a mess before the the right
0: emergent properties start to come out totally. One thing, harking back to an earlier com- part in our conversation, you live in Boulder, not in San Francisco. It's a deliberate choice. Why is that? H- how do you think about that?
1: Everybody talks about people being the most important thing in a startup. But you know, there's the idea from economic stated preferences versus revealed preferences. And people might state that as a preference, but when they don't spend all of their time recruiting, and they also don't have heads of people at, at an early stage. So is it is it really the most important thing, or is that just something that you're repeating? Indisputable that the absolute number of great, I'm just going to keep saying engineers, but that's because that's, I think, a really important thing at the early stages, but this applies to everything, that the absolute number of of great engineers in the Bay Area dwarfs everywhere else in the U.S., but then the interesting number of startups in the, in the Bay Area also is quite large. So I think the important thing to look at, one of the important things to look at is the ratio of great engineers to great startups. And that ratio in the Bay Area is good, but it's not great. I haven't done this math. This is sort of just um, um, uh gut feel. In Boulder, you have uh, Google's, uh, from what I've heard, number one most requested transfer location, 2,200-person office. Uh, there's a Twitter office. There's an Amazon office. There's a Microsoft office in Denver. You have uh, Gusto and and Checker. I think have you know 500 or thousand person offices. The absolute number of interesting early stage startup places that you might work in Boulder and Denver is is, is quite a bit lower. Um, and what I mean is um, startups that you might be willing to take a bet. Uh, that are that are at the uh, Series A or earlier um, that you think could be multi billion dollar market cap companies, and so it actually is this incredible place to recruit if you can build up enough of uh, critical mass to get people to leave those leave those big organizations and join. So that's part of it. it's, it's it's hiring. The second part is retention retention in the Bay Area is notoriously hard. Um, even if you're retaining your people there's just a tremendous amount of distraction because there's just all this uh all these you know extremely exciting things happening all the time there's the the counter argument too which is that isn't the most important thing to totally immerse yourself in your craft and like indisputable that it here it's 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 all people talk about it's all people want to do it's all I want to talk about. Um, and certainly, like it's, I would say it's a a lonelier thing to be in a non, to be outside of the the primary place, and and I think uh, uh, there's a certain cost to that. But I think our our team is exceptional, mm-hmm. and and maybe it's different if you're you've you've. Um, Built up a technical team at, at some company, and, and you know that you have your first, you know, fifteen people or something that you can hire just just in a rolodex. But I think it's uh, I think it's a really tough thing to build a great team in the Bay Area.
0: And, and personally, is it is it largely just a business decision, or personally, are you also happier there?
1: Yeah, the honest answer is that I definitely would not live in Boulder if it weren't the best place to build a company. I would prefer to live in here.
0: I want to close with something you've you've thought a bit about. I'm curious to hear you. Talk about which is uh, shared consciousness.
1: I think a lot about what I call proxies. the The canonical example is, you know, the the CEO from ten years ago who says, "I need to know how many lines of code all the engineers wrote in the last week." Okay, they really don't care about lines of code. What and this is a terrible metric. In, in fact, like you know, we aim for the opposite: to have as few lines of code. But it's this idea that because uh, what they're what they're really looking for is the effectiveness of each person, or maybe it's a trust problem or something like that. I think a lot of what is done in business is is, is uh, attempts at measurement by proxy. So, what is the purpose? And I'm not saying categorically, um, but what is the purpose broadly of a product roadmap? A product roadmap is built such that everybody understands. What the vision of the product is, and what the features are that need to be built, and everything. But all proxies are are lossy uh, by 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 one form or another, um, or, or, or sorry, to, to one degree or another. Um, and so it's like the game of telephone, um, which not only is lossy, but there's also mutations to it. What a what a, the, the sort of idea of um, of a proxy is closely related to this idea of legibility. What a product roadmap is a proxy for is, is a lack of shared consciousness and almost all these things expense policies. If we all had a perfect shared consciousness and you knew what the most important thing for study is, then I don't have to worry about you bu- booking a $15,000 first class ticket, um, you know, to go to a conference that, that doesn't matter in, in, in Europe or something like that. It would just never happen. And so I think, uh, it's, easier and tempting to build proxies as opposed to build shared consciousness, but it's not fun to work through a proxy. And what exceptional people want most is to have the maximum ratio of units of input that they put in to units of output that they get out. And that when you ask people to work on things that are proxies for shared consciousness instead of shared consciousness itself, um, I think... That that you dramatically reduce that, and and all of a sudden things get a lot less interesting at your company. I think how to build this because I'm talking sort of you know in in true bolder fashion about very fluffy things like uh, uh, shared consciousness. I think how to build this is is in an event driven way. If you see something, say something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I never thought I'd be quoting that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it, it's a matter of of you just have to get comfortable having frequent difficult conversations engineers, you know, they'll, they'll talk about this in terms of, um, of, uh, of, uh, you know, checking out a part of the code base and merging it back in. Um, and like you can go off and you can, you can, you can check out the code, you can work on your thing, but you have to commit it back to the code base at some point. And so these principles that you you can get from software engineering, like you have to bring your shared consciousness back in and the good parts and the bad, like you have, you have to bring those bad parts back and, like everything else you do it more often and it just gets easier
0: yeah you know we started this conversation with twitter maybe we'll end it with with twitter uh in that twitter i think is the closest thing we have to sort of a global brain that you said earlier you could plug into but plug out of build on top of contribute to see it evolve in, in real time and um that that to me is fascinating i read this book non zero which sort of talks about our destiny is to form this, this global brain ever since the beginning of time. We've just sort of increasingly been evolving into uh sort of increased relationships of, of increased complexity um, until we sort of you know just unite into this global brain. And it's interesting to see to see that play out.
1: Yeah. I think the question is do you want to be part of that global brain or not? And um, um if for for a while, you know Twitter was great and that's exactly what I wanted especially being like i said in, in a in a non-primary sort of tech area plugging into that global brain was great um, but at the same time I realized that the fork that I had maintaining my own it diverged quite a bit um, in terms of the things that I wanted to talk about the things that we're talking about right now um uh, were, were not the things that I felt like there was enough space to talk about because it's it's a it's the fire hose and the fire, the things are flying by so fast that you can't get to that, uh, level of depth. So I'm still very interested in building and maintaining a shared consciousness, but I would rather do it with 2000 people instead of 20,000. Yeah. If I can define what that consciousness is, yeah. what that consciousness is.
0: My guest today has been Zach Kanner. Zach, thank you so much for coming to the podcast.
1: Thanks. This is great.